All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm Jay Taylor, and I'm talking to you from New York City on this, the ninth day of November 2021. I should uh, mention to you that while the vast majority of you who listen to this show do so by way of podcast, it is also possible to listen to the show live on your computer or smartphone. To do that, you can go to voiceamerica.com forward slash show forward slash show forward slash 1501. That's voiceamerica.com forward slash show forward slash 1501. Uh, before I talk more about today's show or introduce today's show, let me just remind you once again, I publish a newsletter called J. Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. You can go to miningstocks.com to sign up for that. Chen Lin, uh, you can subscribe to Chen's Lin. What is Chen buying? What is Chen selling? Go to ChenPicks.com. And you can subscribe, if you're smart, you will subscribe to Michael Oliver's Momentum and Structural Analysis. You go to OliverMSA.com, OliverMSA.com, and we'll be talking to Michael Oliver in just a few minutes from now. Uh, I do want to thank all of you for listening to the show and um, encourage you to continue sending on your questions or comments, whatever you have, uh, ideas about the show, send them to questions for taylor at gmail.com. And we do need to thank our sponsors because without them there would be no show. Novo Resources, El Oro Resources, Hannon Metals, Labrador Gold Corp, Lion One Metals, SK Mining Corp, and Firefox Gold. Those are the sponsors for today's show. Before I introduce today's show, I want to remind listeners that I will be participating in the Metals Investor Forum this coming Friday and Saturday uh, in Vancouver. Um, at the JW Marriott Park Hotel, and to 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 either attend this in person or uh, virtually, you need to go to metalsinvestorforum.com. Metalsinvestorforum.com. Simply uh, enter your name and email address, and you'll have entry either virtually or in person uh, at the uh, Marriott in Vancouver uh, to attend this event. That, that goes for two days. That's Friday and Saturday. I will be speaking on Friday. The title of my talk is Why Inflation is Not Transitory and the Great Crossover is Underway. The uh, show title today, it's Time for Gold Miners and Other Value Stocks. Lynn Alden, Dr. Quentin Henning, and as I said, Michael Oliver uh, is with me today. Gold and silver miners are the only non-financial sector in the S&P 500 that has been generating real positive free cash flows after you consider inflation real positive Cash flows and the only segment, a non-financial segment in the S&P 500 that has been doing so. Yet the value-orientated gold shares are not performing anything like growth stocks uh, and uh, a lot of other 
Well, the growth, the growth stock sector anyway. And uh, Lynn Alden will be with me to talk about that. She believes the tables may be about to turn in that regard. Interestingly enough, something like 82% over the last 92 years, 82% of the time, value stocks have outperformed growth stocks. But we have these weird periods of time, like the one we're in now, in which craziness just goes, well, people just go crazy with uh, ideas and uh, and growth. And uh, sometimes, I guess, when the interest rates are really low, that has something to do with it. We'll be getting more of the inside, uh, uh, the insights from Lynn when she comes on in the second half of today's show. Uh, the major gold and silver miners that are producing profits are, however, running out of ore, so they are going to have to find some big deposits, and one possible big deposit or may come from SK Mining, and Dr. Quentin Henning will be with us in the second segment to talk about consolidated SK project that is, uh, uh, that is SK Mining's project, and a really exciting story that just came out with some great drill results on, uh, on Monday, so we'll get uh, Quentin's take on that. Uh, when he's with us right after our first commercial break. But right now, I'm happy to tell you that uh, Michael Oliver is here again. Thanks for joining me, Michael. Hi, Jay. Good to be back. It's good to be back, and it's good to be have you with us on a day when things are starting to look up, perhaps, for gold. You sent me a note this morning, and you said that gold is at the gates. Tell us what you mean by that. Well, the momentum gates, anyway. And it, it, even if you look at a price chart uh, and just... Uh, Go back to July, for example. There was a rally that peaked in the 1830s, fell back down. And then in September, 1830s, fell back down. We're in the 1830s again. Mm-hmm. So that, that's a fairly minor shelf for the price guys. The big shelf that most price chart watchers are looking at is just above 1900. That's where you peaked back in January. A secondary peak, that is. So the main peak was in August last year, of course. But the secondary high was just above 1900 in January and again in May. So I think that's the level where the price guys are going to say, oh, wake up, you know, uh, you clear 1900 by much. But from a momentum standpoint, uh, when we measure price in its relationship to its three-quarter moving average, there's a massive structure similar to those price chart structures, a flat line, in other words, uh, that we're now oozing out above here. And uh, the key number for us is to close out any week during this quarter at 1825 or higher. Well, right now we're in the 1830s, so, but it's not Friday. But uh, that would look real good to us. <clears throat> now, silver's got a comparable level. And frankly, it's, it's about a dollar above the market in the silver market uh, where it, it unleashes. But it looks to us like this up-down congestion zone that we've had in gold and uh, downside in the miners and silver since last summer is ending. Hmm. And uh, it's, I think if it's going to end, it's going to end with abruptness and market violence. (laughs) Meaning if you unleash gold here, I think when you uncork it, it's going to move. It's not going to inch its way higher. I don't think you have to work your way back through the old highs. Once you clear this, this hurdle we're at right now on momentum. So we're, we're, we're very excited about what we're seeing. And in other markets out the side mirrors that we want to see doing similar or opposite things, they're tending to do that, uh, especially the T-bond market. Uh, T-bonds, as we all know, at least for the last year or so, has been moving fairly coincident with gold. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking the short-term debt markets, but the long-term 30-year T-bonds. And, uh, you know, they peaked, let's see, price-wise in, in the last week of July of 2020, when did gold make its peak weekly close? The very next week. 
Uh-huh. week of August 2020. Yeah. When did bonds make their corrective low? March of 2021. When did gold make its corrective low that has not come out since? March of 21. Uh, so they're uh, inhaling and exhaling fairly in sympathy. Uh-huh. I think it means that asset managers of size who have skepticism about the stock market as a, a risk-reward situation are moving their money into safer places. Mm-hmm. Well, it certainly would seem so, but uh, safer places into the long bond when you're uh, negative real yields, that doesn't seem all that safe, but I guess well, you've got to you know, go somewhere. It's a parking place for a while anyway. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's, it's well, instead of your it, bank it, account, you know. <laughs> okay. It may be a parking place for a while, but I have to think, and I'm just looking at a, at the gold chart right now in Kitco, and since we started talking, it's gone up a couple more dollars to 1832 yeah. on mm-hmm. the bid. Uh, looks mm-hmm. very strong today, and so I have to think that this set beach ball suppressed under the water that you talk about potentially yeah. and the lord knows we've seen the we've seen the beach ball shoved under the water very harshly by the i'd say the bullion banks but whatever eventually uh, mother nature prevails so uh, what about silver and gold stocks then which do you like more right now well i like i prefer silver over gold and this is a technical observation by the way uh-huh. not just uh-huh. a, a gut preference uh, and when i look at the miners in fact, we put out a report today on relative performance showing how does GDX, for example, the gold mining ETF, do versus gold for the last five, six years in terms of relative performance. GDXJ, the juniors. And then we look at the silver, SIL, which is silver miner ETF, and also the junior silver miner ETF, SILJ. And uh-huh. that, when I look at all four of them, uh, I, I expect all of them to beat gold on the upside. They tend uh-huh. to do worse than gold on the downside, mm-hmm. meaning when gold pulls back, they pull back more. But when gold goes up, they go up more. Mm-hmm. So if we're breaking out in gold on a net basis here, <clears throat> yeah, our quarterly momentum I was talking about, then I would turn to the miners. But when I turn to the miners, it looks to us like the silver miners are better placed than the gold miners on a relative performance basis. So um, that's, that's where I would turn my focus right now. So if gold breaks out over our numbers – um, I think the place to go is use gold as the mama market, but go into the silver miners is our preference mm-hmm. in terms of likely to beat the others. You know, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's possibly because they were largely more depressed than the others as well. Sure, uh, the beach ball has been submerged deeper, <laughs> and so when you let go of it, it comes whooshing up. Uh, but that's mm-hmm. that's where I'd look at silver miners. All right, Michael. Last week, uh, Gwen Preston was a guest on our show and. She uh, was ringing the bell for uranium. What are your thoughts on that? I know you follow that well, market. We look at it every few months. We got bullish show a couple of years ago, in fact. Uh, and it's done what we expected it to do, and it's no doubt got more to do. I don't have a current assessment on it. We, okay. we had expected this surge uh, several months ago to take out a prominent high that was made several years ago. I think it was a $44, and it's done that. Uh, so, you know, it's taking a breather, I think, right now. But uh, it, like the other energy stocks, has been depressed for a long time, energy um, futures markets. And I think that uh, there's more to go in the energy sector. Uh, mm-hmm. Our favorite, though, is natural gas in terms mm-hmm. of likely percentage gain. Mm-hmm. So we favor natural gas over crude. And uh, uranium, unfortunately, you have to go to stocks only. The futures market is extremely illiquid. Mm-hmm. Almost non-existent, just enough to get a daily price, maybe. Uh, yeah. But uh, 
So, but uranium looks solid, and I, mean, I think the world is going to start to turn. You know, the mm-hmm. French are already in that direction. They have seventy percent plus of their uh, energy yeah. comes from uh, nuclear. So, yeah. Well, if you want to, if you want to avoid freezing to death, and you know, if you want to go green yeah. and avoid freezing to death, that's about the only alternative, I think. I don't know when people are going to wake up to that fact, but it seems to be the well, case. It's definitely so, uh, a safe alternative. I mean, you, you you can count the number of people that died in uranium uh, accidents around the world, like the Russian thing near Chernobyl, uh, in hundreds. But yeah. count the number of coal miners that have died and, and exactly. so forth and so on. So it's really a fairly safe energy source. I don't know why people yeah. dislike it, but anyway. Yeah. Well, I guess it's the cataclysmic event that occurs once in a, yeah. once in a while. Um, but anyway, um, that's another a subject for another day. So you really like the oil and gas sector and natural gas. I think there yes. probably there's mm-hmm. an ETF or so you can play in natural gas as well. So, And yeah, I guess oh, you yeah. still like the grains and fertilizers. Yeah, so the the fertilizer stocks, particularly, they've done quite well. We, in fact, the ones we picked have already tripled over the last year. Um, CF Industries and Mosaic. Um, so we think there's a lot more there. And natural gas will have an impact on that because yeah. natural gas is used in the manufacture of fertilizer, mm-hmm. key ingredient in the, the yeah. process of making it. And so if you have a natural gas tightening of supply or rising in price, it cuts into the profitability of the companies that make uh, fertilizer. Hence, uh, you know, you could dent the supply. Mm-hmm. Well, if you dent supply of fertilizer, what's it going to do to the crop yields next year? Mm-hmm. Right, <laughs> so exactly. What, so well, it's one domino yeah. topples into another, you know. Well, and of course, uh, folks, you can go to OliverMSA.com and uh, sign up. And you'll get a, you know, not just every other week to hear Michael on this show, but you can keep up with his constant uh, flow of information charts, uh, momentum, structural uh, analysis that he puts out. Very, very important. Uh, Something I don't want to be without. So thank you again, Michael, for being with us. Always a pleasure having you. Your insights are valued very highly by our listeners. So thank you very much for being with us. Well, folks, we do have to go to break. Uh, Don't go away. Dr. Quentin Henning is going to be with me to talk about SK Mining. Some very exciting things happening there, so you won't want to miss what Dr. Henning has to say. We'll be right back. Firefox Gold is actively exploring in Finland, where recent discoveries have sparked a new gold rush. Firefox controls a major portion of a prospective gold belt, giving the company a distinct advantage for exploration and strategic partnerships. The company's strong international leadership team, combined with its Finland-based exploration specialists, will put Firefox on the crest of the coming wave of gold discoveries. Firefox Gold trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol FFOX. Go to firefoxgold.com to subscribe for updates. SK Mining Corp. Trading under the symbol ESK on the TSX Venture and ESKYF on the OTCQB is a mineral exploration company targeting precious metals, rich VMS deposits in the heart of British Columbia's Golden Triangle. SK Mining controls a prospective land package totaling 130,000 acres, which lies across a geologic trend that once hosted the prolific SK Creek Mine. With a world-renowned geological team, funding in place, and shareholders such as Eric Sprott, SK Mining is on the cusp of a world-class discovery. Go to skmining.com to subscribe for updates. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. 
You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. Really pleased to have with me once again, Dr. Quentin Henning. Uh, Dr. Henning uh, is going to talk today about SK Mining. It's a sponsor to this show and a company that I think is likely on its way to discovering one or more precious metals rich VMS deposits in the SK Consolidated property. That's the SK Consolidated property, which is a huge uh, property south of the famous SK Creek uh, mine is one of Canada's richest mines in history, uh, and it looks like uh, similar sort of geology, similar sort of mineralogy that's that's uh, evolving there. It's a very exciting thing, so I'm really uh, excited to have Quinn with me today, especially since yesterday the company came out with some really, really good intersects, uh, drill intercepts such as 47 meter uh, meters grading 5.2 grams per ton gold equivalent, and that was within 140 meters grading 2.6 grams per ton gold equivalent. And another headline was 44 meters grading 4.7 grams per ton gold equivalent and 92.3 meters grading 2.7 grams of gold uh, equivalent per ton. Those are really great numbers. Stock is trading up again today, up some 15% on top of yesterday, which responded very nicely to that news on Monday. Uh, I saw it selling at $2.20 in U.S. money. That gives it a market cap somewhere north of $260 million or so. Uh, so it is, it's not a baby stock anymore compared to many of them that are sponsors and that I cover in my newsletter, but it's certainly one that is starting to gain some attention uh, from uh, professional investors. So uh, thank you so much for joining me again, Quentin. Always a pleasure, Jay. It's really good to have you with us. And the November drill results that I just mentioned – we're from the TV target. Now, the TV target is just a little south of the Jeff target, uh, but I think TV is one that you worked on a lot last year. Uh, what can you tell us? What do you, what do, what do you know now based on the latest drill res, uh, intercepts that I just mentioned and, and others as well? Yeah, look, uh, it, it's a pleasure to see long intervals like this. It's uh, actually quite, quite remarkable. Last year, we had you know, a few tens of meters of similar grades uh, in, in a couple of holes at TV, and here we are uh, now following up on that. We're basically, we've stepped up the hill, which means we're up higher in the stratigraphy and able to test more or less the entire thickness of this this stock system. Uh, To put it in context, these intervals are from the stockwork feeder to a massive sulfide deposit, and that massive sulfide deposit was found late in the season. We don't have assays from the massive material yet, Everything you see here is from the lower part of this system. It really speaks volumes about uh, the size of this potential discovery. Uh, SK Creek, the thickness of the VMS system over at SK Creek was on the order of about 30 or 40 meters of stockwork, followed by maybe four or five meters of massive. Here we're seeing considerably thicker than was seen at the SK uh, mine, which is, in my view, bodes very well for a significant discovery here. I think we have 
basically a, a VMS system that's entirely preserved. And as they've drilled this thing down dip and further to the south even, uh, they're starting to see this thing expand. Uh, they've also found the massive material. This is a great start. These intercepts are, are absolutely incredible. I, I'd say a lot of the value, if people note, is driven by the silver grades in this uh, system, which is, is uh, you know, the silver was very high at SK, but, I mean, we're already seeing hundreds of PPM silver in this stock work. I mean, this is an exceptional start. Mm-hmm. Um, and you said as you're going south, uh, down dip, uh, but I'm looking at the map and the Jeff, uh, the Jeff occurrence uh, that you were looking at, the target. Uh, there was some thought, I know last year, that there might be a linkage between the two. Uh, how far is the Jeff from the TV? They're about two kilometers apart, and we do see uh, evidence, you know, like geophysical evidence that the two connect. We did have one drill hole between uh, that saw extensive stockwork mineralization, not all that different than what we're reporting here. So we're very hopeful that the two will connect. But it gets better because if you look at the uh, the geophysical maps we put out in recent news releases, you can see that there's a lot of uh, additional targets. You know, we'll call them sulfide-likely targets to the south and to the north of both TV and Jeff. So it's not just really the two kilometers that connect the two. It's really uh, about a five or six kilometer long corridor that extends uh, right through the TVGF area. Wow. So uh, how much drilling? I, th- it's, I believe these, these were the first drill results from this summer's drill program. Is that true? Uh, they are, yes. And, <laughs> yes, the assays are, are kind of coming back in fits and spurts. So these holes were actually drilled kind of in the mid part of the season. Mm-hmm. Uh, we submitted, like, th- I think 276 batches of samples and the lab apparently has like buried them up in a huge pile and so they're kind of going through these things backwards or something so uh, you know here we are announcing holes that were drilled in the middle of the season we don't even have our assays from the first part of the season or the end of the season but uh we'll just take what we can get and (laughs) put out news when we get them so it must be a bit frustrating because i'm sure you'd like to if you could get information on an ongoing basis, it would help you know where to drill next, And I suppose, in some cases anyway. Uh, so there are a lot of drill holes let, left to be, a lot of assays left that we can be looking forward to, I guess. Yes, there's 93 drill holes in, in the lab. Uh, we expect to be able to release results. If you know, We start to see the, the lab kind of crank up these re- assay returns. We should be able to re- release a steady stream of results over the next two or three months, we'll call it. Uh-huh. And um, and I guess you're probably going to be waiting for all that information to come in before you start to uh, to engineer your drill program for the next summer? Uh, yes. we Well, we're actually having our meeting to discuss drill plans uh, next week. We, mm-hmm. we have the entire crew from SK and uh, both on the Canadian and American side meeting here in Colorado, and we're going to start discussing. The beauty of this uh, deposit style is that you can pretty much see where things are headed. You know, we uh-huh. know we have that massive sulfide at the top. Now, we know uh, we have a huge stock work to follow up on here at TV, but we also have the, the results now from the Scarlet Ridge. I mean, when I say results, I mean the field work that was done up there says, yes, there is a huge sulfide system up there. So we can start laying plans for that. Uh, down at C10 in the new Vermilion area, mm-hmm. uh, 
and start outlining our drill program down there. We are going to be equally as aggressive, if not more so, next year. Uh, you know, now that we're starting to see these numbers come back. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, and so you have a, it's something like ten different targets that I look on the map. Are they all considered VMS targets? Or are there some? Are there any of those that might be a little different? Um, everything we've seen so far, I think, is compellingly VMS. Uh, it's not to say there couldn't be some other styles of mineralization here. Uh, if you look, you know, Pretium, you know, which is now being taken over by Newcrest, uh, is working, uh, has the Bruce Jack mine, which is, mm-hmm. uh, you know, some people call it epithermal, some people call it orogenic, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a head scratch what it is, but uh-huh. there is potential for other style, but we're focused on the VMS. And we think most of what we see on this property is SK Creek type. And do you think the SK Creek uh, occurrence is, is part of the same thing, possibly? Uh, absolutely. It, it, we're in the same stratigraphy. We're, you know, we're in the same, like this mineralization here, if you want to put it in context of what they have at SK Creek, this would probably be the lower mudstone horizon, that's Kenesis. You know, so we, we have the very same stratigraphy, very same system, really. This is an offshoot of the the SK Creek deposit or district. Uh, what's important for people to understand, though, is that we have 526 square kilometers of, of ground through this area. Uh, so we have, you know, 90%, I would say, of the perspective ground for these the additional SK Creek type discoveries up here. That's incredible. And at, at SK Creek, of course, uh, that is being put moved back towards production again. They're having some remarkable. Even though it was one of the richest mines in Canadian history, uh, it's still not finished. Uh, that's correct. You know, if you look at the history of it, it was found, I think, in 1989. It was put into production just a, like four or five years after that. A homestake won a bidding war, very intense bidding war, and put it into production. Barrick then acquired homestake. It produced gold up through th- around 2008. It was the highest grade operating gold mine on planet Earth for many years. Uh, but uh, what did they do? They mined the, the high-grade VMS. They mined the massive sulfide material, but they left a lot of the lower-grade. Not, I'm not saying low-grade. I'm just saying somewhat <laughs> lower-grade mineralization uh, behind, and that includes the stock work and stuff. So, so we, uh, you know, we think we have a very similar story here. I think uh, we're on the right path. The grades that we see in these drill holes are actually very, very similar to what uh, Skeena has reported from from their drilling. Right, Pesquina. Um, how well funded is the company? Uh, we we actually are, are pretty well funded, uh, even though like we we had a robust budget this year. Like we went up there thinking we're going to drill thirty thousand meters. We ended up drilling twenty three thousand five hundred meters. So we were you know about what is it about eighty percent of the way through the mm-hmm. program when the snow hit. So it it actually left us with uh, some cash in the bank account uh, after all the bills are paid here. So we're we're in pretty good shape. Uh, we, you know, we are looking at next year. Obviously, we want to be aggressive. Got a lot of warrants that are in the money now, and we also have some strategic shareholders, of which you know, Crescat, whom I'm I represent, mm-hmm. uh, have a, a very strong interest to make sure the company succeeds. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm just looking at a you know market cap as I mentioned, 350, 360 million or so in U.S. money. Uh, it's not a baby compared to many of the companies that I've learned to know through your. Uh, through your excellent work, Quentin, but uh, I guess it's all relative, isn't it? I mean, if you can see uh, world-class potential here, um, it seems to me it would have that kind of that kind of upside. 
Well, if you look at the value that was created by the original SK Creek discovery, even though this is going way back, you know, 30 odd years, uh, it's just phenomenal. I mean, what these high grade discoveries can can uh, return. I think we'll see some higher grades come out you know, later this season when we get uh, some of the assays from the massive sulfide, you know, touch wood. I think we'll mm-hmm. see, some, you know, I don't know if they're going to be SK Creek grades or not, but uh, yeah. I had hope so. And I, I think that a discovery of this ilk is certainly worth a lot in this market. No. I think when people start realizing and when people also uh, maybe take their eyes off of some of the more sensational competi- competing uh, vehicles in the markets, they might start paying more attention to gold stocks. Again, as your Crestcat uh, Capital folks have reminded us, the, uh, the, the one sector in the S&P 500, the one non-financial sector in the S&P 500 uh, is uh, the mining stocks. The, mining, the big mining companies are making a lot of money these days. The one that's making free cash flow after inflation, uh, the mining sector, the only sector uh, in among the fortune in the fortune 500 non-financials so i think that's i think we're going to see money going there quentin and today we're seeing a nice move in the gold price so it's all good i guess then what we should be watching for then is just we should be watching those of us that are invested should be watching keeping our eyes out for more assays there should be a lot of them coming yeah, absolutely all righty thank you so much quentin thank you uh for updating us on this story um talk to you again soon Thank you, folks. Thank you very much. All right, folks, don't go away because Lynn Alden is going to be with me right after the break uh, to talk about, well, her topic uh, today, or one she's written, recently written about anyway, is about growth versus uh, growth versus value stocks. And she thinks the tide may be turning towards value, uh, which I think would bode well for gold mining shares. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Lynn Alden. Lion One Metals is focused on high-grade gold in Fiji, led by legendary Canadian financier Walter Barakoff. Lion One is permitted for production and drilling for discoveries in one of the most exciting high-grade gold projects in the prolific South Pacific Ring of Fire. Lion One trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol LIO and on the OTCQX under the symbol LOMLF. Go to our website at liononemetals.com for more information about Lion One Metals and high-grade gold in Fiji. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back, Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. Really pleased to have with us once again, Lynn Alden. Uh, and you should go to lynnalden.com to partake of her excellent service. And she has uh, things that are free, and she has some things for very reasonably um, service as well for investors. Uh, but I think anybody who's really focused on the markets can 
benefit from her work. So it's Lynn Alden, L-Y-N-A-L-D-E-N.com. Go there to learn about Lynn's services and uh, and also sign up uh, for her for all that she has to offer, or at least the parts that you feel will benefit you. Uh, thanks for joining us again, Lynn. It's really good to have you with us. Thanks for having me again. Always happy to be here. Oh, thank you. And uh, I know that you're. We see you increasingly on on various venues, and I'm really happy for you. Uh, and you're, I think, for good reason. People are really interested in what you have to say. Uh, I'd like to focus on your, um, I guess it was uh, October 24th letter on value stocks. Uh, you said not quite dead yet. Well, they certainly seem to be dead. They had a horrible time of it, as you point out, uh, this uh, last 10 years or so. Um, so you sort of see the potential for resurgence of value stocks. And as you noted that uh, with about 90 years of data, value stocks have outperformed growth stocks uh, most of the time, I think I saw something like 82% of the time or something like that in your letter. How do you define a value stock and how do you define growth stocks? So basically there's no firm definition. Uh, for, for some of this research, I use Russell's definition, uh, uh-huh. uh, and, but there are other ways to do it. But essentially value stocks are slower growing, cheaper stocks that, that generally re- like return value to shareholders in the form of dividends, uh, and basically, you know, passing on the earnings to the shareholders rather than reinvesting everything back into the business to, to grow very quickly. So it's, it's generally a later stage company um, that has that kind of already reached, you know, some degree of maturation uh, and is now in the operating process. Uh, mm-hmm. And so if you look back over the long term, value stocks outperform growth stocks most of the time. But I, you know, I've often made the comparison that in many ways in terms of fiscal and monetary policy, the 2010s were a lot like the 1930s, right? Mm. Because the aftermath of the global financial crisis was somewhat similar, but less extreme than the aftermath of the, the you know, the financial crisis that led up to the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you compare those two periods uh, in terms of value stock versus growth stock performance, those two decades were also when value did the absolute worst compared to growth. Mm-hmm. Uh, so outside of those decades, values generally done quite well, um, but those two decades uh, were were particularly brutal for value stocks. Mm-hmm. And um, what do you? What's in common um, with those periods of time? I, uh, low interest rates, for sure. So uh, they had they had, they had low interest rates, and they also had slow real GDP growth rates. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, in those environments, investors flock to the the smaller number of companies that are able to grow through that environment. Basically, they have you know secular growth potential. They have some sort of new technology or something where even in a difficult economic environment, they're still growing quickly. And so uh, investors are willing to pay, in, in many cases, very, very high valuations for the few things in a market that are growing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so whereas if you have a higher rate in, environment or a more inflationary environment, uh, that tends to benefit value stocks to, to a larger degree. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly with low interest rates, you're... Um, you know, your, your, your discount factor. So in other words, there's not a lot of uh, competition uh, when interest rates are, I mean, interest rates are low, so you can afford to, I mean, there's no, no way to go and earn a safe sort of a low risk uh, return. I mean, as we've seen for some time now, we're, you know, we have these incredibly low rates, and so people are going out on the risk curve, though, to a great extent. It seems to encourage a lot of what I would think of as malinvestment. I remember very well during the 1990s uh, before the tech uh, bubble burst, 
You know, I mean, there was all kinds of crazy things that people were putting money into. When you don't, when you can't, you know, go out and get five, six, seven percent, and uh, you know, you're sort of forced out into a higher risk environment, aren't you? Isn't that what's happening a lot in in this environment? Yes, that's absolutely happened. And one way to basically characterize it is that for lack of good money, people have a tendency to monetize other things. So mm-hmm. they sit there and say, "Well, I can't just I can't hold my money in cash because it's yielding below the inflation rate." So they shovel money into you know index funds. They shovel money into say their home, uh, anything else that they can that that's a little bit more real to them. They shovel money into, and so it tends to push up the valuations because the opportunity cost is is so poor, right? The opportunity cost mm-hmm. for just holding cash, you don't really get any mm-hmm. sort of real return or even treasuries. Uh, and so instead, there's a very low hurdle for people just to put their money into other things regards to valuation. And of course, that can come back to haunt them once they get to extremely high levels. Mm-hmm. Um, so in your October 24th report, you noted that it seems like there could be a leveling off of this decline in value versus growth. Uh, related to the pandemic, I guess with, with pandemic relief, uh, maybe the prospects of, of going back to a more normal, uh, you know, higher interest rate environment, um, allowing interest rates to rise to a certain extent, at least. Uh, do you see that happening now? So I think rates are going to be submerged below the inflation rate for quite a long period of time. Um, but I think the general structural trend of getting to lower and lower rates is pretty much over now. So, you know, they could go sideways for a while. They could eventually start to go up, uh, you know, within it, within a certain band. And so I think that catalyst is off the table for growth stocks. And in addition, if you look at the, the commodity cycle, um, obviously, you know, energy is in the value camp, for example. Uh, and that had a very, very poor five years or so, right, yeah. from, from that 2014, 2015 period all the way up into, into, the, into the pandemic and the lockdowns and stuff. Um, and so that weighed on the growth-to-value ratio. Uh, but going forward, I think, I think energy is in a much stronger position now. Um, I think it can be overbought for periods of time, right? So it doesn't mean it's going to go up in the next three months or so. But I think structurally, energy is likely going to do pretty well in the 2020s. And that's a, that's a significant part of the, the value factor, in addition to other commodities and industrials in general. Yeah. Uh, while we're on the topic of energy, uh, you wrote a paper, you wrote a, an extensive report on the uranium sector back in uh, September 5th. Uh, what are your thoughts now about uranium? Uh, I'm pretty bullish on uranium structurally. I, I like holding, at this point, with these valuations, I like holding the exposure to the underlying commodity, right? So, for example, mm-hmm. the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust. Mm-hmm. So part of it is that there's just, you know, for a long time, uranium was priced below the cost of new production. Uh, so basically, based on how many nuclear reactors existed, it was projected that eventually you'd have a deficit, and therefore uranium have to go higher price in order to get mines turned back on, in order to expand existing mines, things like that. Um, and so we, we've had a price jump because of the Sprott um, you know, activity in the market. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but at the same time, we've also had renewed interest from, say, politicians uh, in nuclear energy because of some of the energy crises that we're seeing in China and Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know, the price got, has gotten higher, but also I think the fundamentals improved. Uh, so I'm still structurally bullish on uranium with, say, a five-year view uh, at current levels. Uh, especially with access to the to the underlying commodity. Mm-hmm. I just wonder, um, you know, with the green movement, you know, everybody wants to go green. Uh, one of the ways to do it, in my view, that at least with existing technology and avoid freezing to death, would be to go 
go nuclear, and yet I know America's nuclear plants are aging, and there's a lot of them that are scheduled to be taken out of commission. So I'm just wondering, where in the world are we going to get our energy, Lynn? Do you see anything, uh, uh, you know, technology-wise, using renewables that can save the day for us? I think it's pretty clear that nuclear is going to have to play a large role because solar and wind are useful for a percentage of a grid. Mm -hmm. Uh, But once they start becoming a very large percentage of a grid, uh, then you need to have a way to store that energy uh, to to make up for the fact that they're highly variable. And that's where the extra cost comes in. So generally when you hear, for example, in the media, like solar got below the cost of natural gas or whatever, they're often – you know, assuming that's a small part of the grid, and they don't need you don't need extensive storage capabilities, right? So once you introduce the storage, uh, that gets a lot more costly, a lot more complex. Mm-hmm. Um, and and those are unless we have a ma- massive uh, material science breakthrough, those yeah. are very those are very slow improving technologies compared to you know something like software, something that's subject to Moore's law, like processors. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's a hard material science problem. So overall, I think you know basically. They can do ESG things until they run into energy crises, which you see in, in Europe and China. You know, plans change pretty quickly once you face the prospect of, of not having enough gas for the winter, for example, or not being yeah. able to keep the lights on. <laughs> uh, so, so things change pretty radically there. They open, they, you know, they reopen coal plants, they reopen natural gas plants, they do whatever it takes to keep the lights on. Um, and so if they want to fix that more structurally, uh, I do think that the nuclear is going to be a, a bigger role. And China's already kind of announced that to some extent. Um, and there's been a renewed interest in some of these other countries. So yeah, most of I think most of the nuclear growth is probably going to be outside, you know, uh, of the developed world, probably the more emerging world, like the especially Asia. Um, mm-hmm. But I also think if, if some of the developed countries are smart, they'll probably end up shifting to nuclear being a, a slightly higher percentage of their grid. Mm-hmm. Certainly, France has done that, but uh, they're sort of an anomaly uh, after the. Uh, problems in Japan, a lot of the countries shut down and decided they didn't want to go in that direction. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's 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 what it's the problems you face now. If people are freezing to death, they might change their minds fairly quickly. And I see our president is talking about, or at least somebody is talking about in his administration, uh, shutting down another pipeline that would bring natural gas through Michigan into the U.S. from Canada. So I don't know. I, I doesn't it beats me. But getting back to this value versus uh, growth issue. Uh, what can we learn then from, I guess, what, what, I'd, what I'd like to ask you is how can we know which direction we're headed uh, because it has everything to do. I know that you write about this stuff on a regular basis, so people who follow you will certainly uh, be able to benefit from your insights into, you know, which direction are we headed. Um, so what can we learn from the 30s and, and from, you know, from this period of time? What do, I guess, um, you know, we, interest rates, as long as they stay suppressed, I just can't imagine – with I think the pre, the PPI is something like 8.4 percent or something like that now year over year. I mean it's incredible to see your you know interest rates um, see 10-year Treasuries at I don't know a couple percent or whatever it is. It's very low. I mean won't Mother Nature the the market forces eventually something's got to give. It seems to me, Lynn. You know as an engineer, I would imagine you know what gives way here. I think what gives way is the value of the currency. Uh, and so, for example, if you look in the 1930s to 1940s, you had that slow growth, disinflationary decade. Uh, you know, then obviously you had conflicts. You had you had the war in the 40s, and basically that resulted in very very large fiscal deficits that that mostly went into the domestic economy. Even though a lot of the activity was overseas, ultimately war spending 
you know, went, went to things like building factories and GI bills and things like mm-hmm. that. So they did this massive kind of wartime MMT type of environment. Uh, it was very inflationary. Um, and yet because debt as a percentage of GDP was so high, they just held rates at near zero anyway for nine years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and, and so basically just anyone who's holding cash and treasury just got, you know, 40% of their value inflated away mm-hmm. over the course of that decade. And I think overall, the transition from the 2010s to the 2020s is going to go along the same route, right? So this is something I've been talking about for a while, and now we're starting to see it play out over mm-hmm. the past uh, six months or so, mm-hmm. where you're getting pretty high inflation uh, without correspondingly high interest rates. And so the Fed's mm-hmm. holding short-end rates near zero, um, and they're all, they've also bought a large percentage of the, the longer-duration securities. Uh, there's also been, over the past several years, there's been regulations they basically force institutions to hold more uh, treasuries, right? So money market funds and things like that. So they basically have engineered a collateral shortage. So they've engineered mm-hmm. uh, basically a need for these institutions to hold these treasuries, um, mm-hmm. and then they buy a ton of the treasuries. So so they basically, you know, despite the fact that there's so much debt issuance, there's still demand for them, um, and so they're able to suppress the interest rates uh, for for quite a long period of time. Yeah. And I think there will be bumps along the road. Um, but that, so basically the release valve in that environment ends up being that the value of the currency goes down and that you want to be in other types of assets. So mm-hmm. it could be value stocks, could be commodities, uh, could be good monies, uh, things like that, basically that are not, you know, negative yielding, negative real yielding cash and treasuries. Mm-hmm. I just remember as a young man in the, uh, uh, in, in the 1970s, uh, that it seemed the Fed lost control. Uh, of course that was the seventies times were different. Uh, the Fed lost control of, of inflation, and uh, the bond vigilantes came out and uh, really put an end to it and forced it. Ultimately, then Paul Volcker having to pull back the money supply, and, um, and you know we saw our first mortgages, 17.5 percent mortgage in uh, in 1981. So, uh, uh, but I guess you can't really compare the 70s with with this point in time. It's a, it's quite a bit different. We certainly certainly can't see. Uh, Raising interest rates is a viable alternative for the Fed at this time, I think, and in a very serious way, as Volcker did in 1980. Well, yeah, exactly, because if you if you run the math for say 30 trillion dollars in debt, uh, you know, any sort of substantially high interest rates get you into the trillions and trillions per year in interest payments. So basically, mm-hmm. you have a fiscal solvency issue, mm-hmm. and so that that's the same thing I saw in the 40s. Basically, debt was so high, they said, well, there's inflation, but we have to hold r- rates low anyway, mm-hmm. and so the Fed can control the short end of the curve. Uh, now they could do things around the margins. They could raise a couple, you know, 25 basis point hikes here. But yeah. for example, in order to get back to real interest rates, according to say official CPI right now, yeah. you have to you'd have to raise rates to like six percent or five and a half percent. And so that you know that's that's off the table, right? So um, I, I think they're kind of stuck in that environment where they're they're more like the 40s in this sort of currency devaluation environment where the release valve is is the currency. It's kind of like you know you, it's like if you're if you have three variables and there's like one or two that you absolutely have to mo- have to you know uh, optimize for, which in this mm-hmm. case is basically you know nominal repayment of treasury debt, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, then you sacrifice another variable. So I think they're at the stage where they pretty much have to sacrifice the currency in the form of deeply negative real rates. And so that's one of those things where investors, if they're aware of that likelihood um, and they can monitor that, uh, they can make sure they're in other assets that benefit from that or at least reduce the harm from, from mm-hmm. that environment. Mm-hmm. Might mean buying real things and uh, uh, tangible items to a certain extent. 
Uh, yes. Certainly, if, if people start to become fearful of, of uh, rapidly rising inflation, the psychology could change very dramatically and your currency could probably be destroyed relatively rapidly. But uh, I thought it was really interesting, uh, Daniel D. Martino Booth, who I'm sure you, you know of, uh, said in a quote in an interview last week, I saw this, she said, you can't tighten monetary policy when you are heading into a dramatically slowing economy and you have all these zombie companies that will die when rates are higher. And yet you cannot not raise rates given serious signs of inflation. So it's, you know, I think the Fed is really between a rock and a hard place, as they say. And uh, I just would like to ask you um, if you have any thoughts about the new, uh, the reappointment of, uh, of the current Fed chairman or, uh, possibly uh, Miss Brainard, what difference it might make if, if she were to be uh, become the Fed chairman. Do you have any thoughts on that? So I think it probably would not affect the next six months or so in terms of monetary policy because they, they pretty much have their plan set for now. I mm-hmm. think that would, that would have a greater likelihood of affecting the next uh, period of deceleration. Mm-hmm. Um, and so overall, you know, Brainerd, you get uh, you generally tilt more dovish. So you have mm-hmm. you have more likelihood of say formal yield curve control being implemented mm-hmm. uh, than than under their their current approach. Um, but I think ultimately the Fed kind of shapes itself to whatever they they are box, You know, they're already boxed in a corner, and so they kind of shape themselves to you know whatever whatever they have to do. And so for example, mm-hmm. Powell, you know, he had the famous Powell pivot. He had all these yes. plans, mm-hmm. and then when the junk bond market froze for six weeks. All those plans went out the window right? because mm-hmm. he was trying to tighten into a decelerating economy, mm-hmm. um, and so things broke. And mm-hmm. so, you know, he's been the most dovish Fed chair ever, even though he didn't start that way, right? Mm-hmm. So, I think basically, regardless if he stays the Fed chair or we get another Fed chair, um, they're gonna they're gonna generally be leaning dovish most of the time, meaning that rates will be below the below inflation for most of the time, um, and that basically that there's signs of of distress in the treasury market. Uh, they'd probably come in and, and you know, uh, either accumulate them or use their various repo facilities to uh, keep them functioning smoothly, even when they're below the you know prevailing inflation rate. Yeah, so it's probably not going to make a lot of difference uh, <laughs> who who the Fed chairman is, I suppose. Um, if I hear what you're saying, at least not in the short run. Yeah, I uh, think I think overall the fiscal outcomes have more impact, right? So. Mm-hmm. So whether or not certain fiscal spending bills pass, uh, certainly I think I think affects the inflation versus deflation outcome. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not the it's not the only variable, but it's certainly uh, you know a useful a, a variable to be aware of. So I think those you know certain bills passing or not passing, and, and specifically what's in them, that that will overall matter I think for 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 the money system. Uh, whereas the Fed is kind of just. You know, kind of like a dog on a leash that it's mm-hmm. it's kind of pulled along by the treasury, gets pulled along by the treasury market, you know, to keep that functioning smoothly. So I think basically, the Fed used a lot of their ammo over the past four decades, and now their job is basically to assist the treasury uh, in terms of you know monetizing debt um, mm-hmm. and and keeping yields below the inflation rate. So right. I think I think they're they're kind of on autopilot uh, and basically just kind of put out fires that that pop up. Mm-hmm. And as you pointed out in, in some of your work in the past, uh, we go into these long periods of time when, when certain L, certain um, segments of the economy do extremely well, become very wealthy. We've seen a hollowing out of the middle class to a great extent. It seems to be ongoing. That then creates certain political pressures that sort of change what happens and and the demands that are placed on the Fed to finance to finance all that. Uh, 
And you see, we're really playing, we're, we're watching it play out here in real time right now, uh, what's going on in Congress. And I guess it looks like the, uh, like the, the one bill will be passed, the, uh, the infrastructure bill, but uh, the more elaborate one, we'll have to wait and see, I guess. Yeah, I think that's that's a key one to watch because the infrastructure bill spread out over five years. So even though it's it, it, it is an amount of money that that we used to think of as being a pretty large amount of money, um, basically you know compared to the money supply now, um, you know that's that that's I think a pretty small contributor to inflation. Uh, the the second one that they're looking to pass, I think, is is you know because of the size of the numbers involved, uh, it's worth watching that one to see how that's going to affect you know the next several years, mm-hmm. um, and you know. The, the, the math starts to change, um, you know, when you get closer to say the 2022 elections, right? So if there's a, if there's a more split uh, Congress and administration, uh, you're less likely to get things through at that point, right? So yeah. uh, I'm kind of watching this window mm-hmm. uh, because it's, you know, we basically we're going to see over the next year what they pass or they don't pass because I, I think that'll be pretty important. All right, Lynn. With just about thirty seconds left, what might in a, what might we look for your next letter? What what are you thinking of writing about next? So I, I've written an article about energy, and I think it's due for an update. So I'm probably mm-hmm. going to focus the newsletter issue on energy. All right. Well, folks, uh, LynnAlden.com. Go there to sign up for her letter. She has a free letter. It's very worthwhile doing. Uh, I can't wait to see it in my inbox uh, every believe about every six weeks or so. Right, Lynn? Yes. Yeah. Thank you so much for being with us. Always a pleasure having you. And Thank you. Uh, look to have you again sometime soon, hopefully. Happy Folks, that, that is all for this week. Uh, next week, I'm going to have Alistair McLeod with me as well as Dr. Roger Moss. Um, and so uh, Alistair will be talking about the usual topics of uh, the dollar and gold and so forth. Uh, and Roger Moss will be talking about the Kingsway Gold Project, a really exciting news story in Newfoundland. So uh, we hope that you'll join us next week. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Labrador Gold is an exploration company focused on its flagship Kingsway project located in central Newfoundland Gold District. Labrador Gold's first phase drilling program has successfully identified high-grade gold mineralization, including a 3.6-meter intercept, grading 20.6 grams per ton gold, and 1.85 meters, grading 50.38 gram per ton gold. The company has approximately $35 million in the treasury and is led by a world-class team of CEO Roger Moss and technical advisors Sean Ryan and Quentin Henney.